0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Lost to Time. This is a podcast where we introduce you to the life and music of composers and other musicians whose music has been lost to history. This podcast is brought to you by the Contemporary Art Music Project. The Contemporary Art Music Project, also known as CAMP, is an organization that promotes innovative art music by collaborating with living composers and performing artists from around the world. Today, you're joined by myself, the host, Joshua Mallard, and our guest host, Han Hitchin. Thanks for joining us, Han.
1: Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we get the ball rolling, Han, how about you tell us about the camp events coming up?
1: Sure. So the first one we got coming up is on September 30th, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's going to be live streamed on YouTube. It's in collaboration with the New Arts Collaboration. And it's going to be a benefit concert that also will have an open discussion of music by minority composers and performers. And the said people who will be in the discussion are going to be some of the performers and composers who are a part of the concert. So you don't want to miss that.
0: That's great. I love seeing that. What else do we have planned?
1: Sure. So we also got a couple in-person concerts happening that are also going to be streamed. The first one is in Tempor which is on October 3rd, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be happening at the Tomuka Arts White House in Orlando, Florida. And then a few days later, on October 9th, at St. Andrew's Church in Tampa, Florida, is going to be their Constellations concert. And that is also going to be live streamed as well as in person.
0: It's great to see some concerts happening again understandably, live music took a huge hit last year and throughout the pandemic. So it's nice to see things kind of rekindling a bit. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And something that I think is also really wonderful is that a lot of these in-person events are also offering a live stream version. So if you're not in the Orlando or Tampa area, you can tune in from wherever in the world you are. And I think that's just fantastic.
0: Yes, very good. The joys of the internet. Now, there's something else you don't want to miss out on, Campground 22. On October 31st is the submission deadline for composers and performers. You definitely want to get in on that. This is Camp's inaugural new music festival, and it's holding a call for composers and performers. So get your application in. So the topic we're going to be discussing today is none other than Julia Perry. Now, Julia Perry is an African-American woman composer who lived from 1924 to 1979. And I'll tell you right off the bat, Julia Perry is just super underrated. Now, Han, you've definitely heard some Perry works. I mean, do you agree?
1: I am in complete agreement with that. Yes.
0: And the way I kind of think about it is like we're people who are invested in music And there's these amazing composers who were very active during their lifetimes, who basically knocked it out of the park, had amazing accolades, who are just absent in today's listening spaces, music curriculums, and what have you. And sadly, that happened to Julia Perry, who was easily one of the most achieving composers of color and women composers in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, it really is a shame that a lot of these really really awesome composers often get overlooked for aspects of themselves that they can't change such as their gender, their ethnicity, their religion, whatever it might be. And I think it's good that we're actively going to um showcase some of these composers on this podcast. So Josh, thank you for having this.
0: Well, I remember when I first heard Julia Perry and I was super grateful for who introduced me and hopefully A lot of you out there will get some joy from hearing about Julia Perry's life and music. And of course, for the record, these are composers who are outstanding in their own right. It has almost nothing to do with their ethnicity, gender, skin color. These are composers that by all rights should be in the canon and who are just not included due to aspects out of their control. So we're going to jump into Julia Perry's life a bit before we talk about some of her music. Now, this is a bit of a wild ride and I think a lot of you will be super interested in how Julia Perry got to where she was by the end of her life. So to kick things off, Julia Perry was born in Lexington, Kentucky, but she met she spent most of her time in Akron, Ohio. And a question a lot of people have is How did someone who is an African-American in the early mid 20th century end up with the musical education? And I think we can kind of trace this to her formative years. So her father was a doctor and a pianist. Um, Her mother was also super encouraging of her children studying music. So Perry, as well as her sisters, ended up studying violin for a bit. And Julia Perry switched to studying piano after studying violin for about two years. So I think that early introduction to music really kicked things off. Um, And eventually, Perry ended up at Akron University and Westminster Choir College. And this was between 1943 to 1948, where she got a bachelor's and a master's degree. So that's like a huge ati- achievement for um, someone with so many odds stacked against them at this time.
1: Oh, yes, especially at that time period. It. I mean, if I look at some of my relatives back in that time period, most of them don't have degrees of that level in any sort of field. So I think it's very wonderful that Perry got this education at this time.
0: Yes. And what we see a bit of, too, is closer that you get to the civil rights movement and after it. You see um, more people of color in the academic sphere. But even today, it's an issue we're dealing with of a lot of people of color not having accessibility to this kind of education. But this is where things get quite interesting. So if you look at Julia Perry's work during this time, it was a lot of choir, a lot of vocal works, and that was a huge part of Perry's output. And a lot of these were influenced by um, Black folk music um, in America. So like spirituals, things like that incorporated into her vocal works during this time. Now, we'll dig into some of the highlights later, but <laughs> how about we get into where things get kind of wild from here?
1: Sure, let's get into it. So Perry received a scholarship from the Berkshire, or Berkshire, I'm going to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it.
0: I think we'll go with Berkshire for this one.
1: All right. So she received a scholarship from the formerly known as Berkshire Music Center, which is called Tanglewood Today. And here she studied for two summers. And she studied with a well-known composer named Luigi Dalla Piccola, who some of you may or may not be familiar with. And Many of you. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, that was, that's just such an amazing opportunity to have. And this was back in 1951.
0: So we're off to a good start. Like you finish your master's, you pick up a Guggenheim and oh, wait, we haven't even gotten there yet. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, Josh, you're spoiling my all the news I'm going to share. So, yeah. So the following year in 52, Perry received a Guggenheim Fellowship and she got to study with that same teacher, Luigi della Piccola, in Florence, Italy. So here she's actually having the opportunity to leave the U.S., travel to Italy and get some even more amazing opportunities.
0: Well, this sounds great to me. (laughs) But now this is a huge period of Perry's life where Perry spends almost a decade in Europe. And this is going to, by some accounts, be super influential to Perry's output. And when people talk about things like the lineage of instruction, uh, Perry picks up another Guggenheim and ends up going to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger. Now, yes. this is a, a big deal.
1: Yeah, for those who are not aware, Nadia Boulanger had some really, really amazing students. Um, some of them including the likes of Elliot Carter, Roy Harris, Aaron Copeland, Virgil Thompson Thompson, just to name a few. There's a whole list you can
0: even go more. Find. Like yeah. you, you might as well just like close your eyes and and pick a composer. Yeah, it's a very
1: extensive list and she's had such an immense amount of influence on so many influential composers of the 20th century.
0: And I really think this is a big deal because this is a composer of color from the U.S., completely marginalized group, also a woman, getting to study with another woman all the way in Europe and tap into this lineage of great composers of like some upper echelon of composers you could say so this is kind of a big deal in the sense of like giving access to the arts to a person of color in such a direct way um and definitely this comes off the work that Perry put in just being an amazing composer during this time Perry is producing a ton of amazing works and we'll be telling you a bit about those in a bit But on that whole dynamic of U.S. to Europe, I do wonder, um, well, first off, while Perry's in Europe for almost a decade writing a lot of music, Perry's also conducting a lot of music and receives a sponsorship from the U.S. Information Service to go conduct around Europe.
1: So she's not just a skilled composer, she's also a skilled conductor.
0: Yes, and of course a vocalist as well. Um, There's some pieces that are said to be written for her voice specifically mm-hmm. so definitely we're looking at someone with a lot of a lot of skills um but if you look at other um big names people of color during the time some of them say that going to Europe they receive a better reception than in the US and of course many people have talked about Europe being like the bigger center for um classical music during that time so I was just digging into Miles Davis a while back and he had his whole comment of like, oh, yeah, touring around Europe has been better in some ways, w- well received, better than in the U.S., where, of course, the racial dynamic is really rough. And yes, it's rough in Europe, very obviously, but um, there seems to be some, something that, that people of color are getting more out of Europe during this time, perhaps.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm going to be honest, I never really noticed or picked up on that. And I'm not sure if it's just something that I haven't happened to heard before or if it's because I'm not a person of color myself. But that's a really interesting connection that and I'm sure there's plenty of historical context relating as to you know why people of color in the US were not as well received as when they're out working in Europe.
0: Well, Maybe um, the the historians, musicologists out there uh, listening can piece this together for us because I've I've just heard this digging through interviews. So I wonder, like, if this is a documented trend. Mm -hmm. But of course, when Perry goes back to the U.S., the success doesn't necessarily stop. So Perry... It, this is a really big deal, returns to the U.S. and ends up teaching at what is now Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida, and also the Atlanta University Center in Georgia. So this is kind of a, a interesting aspect of you'll see the closer we get to the civil rights movement and after it, you see more people of color in academic teaching positions or just in academia in general. But of course, we still have a huge problem today of people of color or of marginalized groups in general um, not being very well represented in academia. So Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to have this positive moment, um, but also that we can look back now and see where are we now, you know, decades and decades later. But, you know, we came from Florida, so it's interesting to see, you know, these great composers kind of make their way around the world.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's really great to see how our paths differ from the paths of composers who precede us, the likes of Julia Perry, and seeing the similarities and the differences in our careers as artists compared to hers.
0: Oh, so you mean like looking back at 20th century composers Mm -hmm. and how their careers unfolded compared to us composing today?
1: Yes. The lives of 21st century composers compared to that of 20th century composers.
0: There's actually a bit we can get into on that. I think it's super interesting. Mm -hmm. But let's finish up uh, what happened with Perry's life from that point onward. So in the U.S., Perry continued to write amazing music, did super well um, until, unfortunately, Perry suffered a series of strokes that impaired her ability to write, um, with her right hand. So composing itself was very difficult Mm -hmm. and she tried to adjust and use her left hand, but it was, you know, understandably really difficult. And there wasn't that much time between that happening and Perry's death in 1979.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So super tragic. Um, we've seen it before really amazing composers who have these short lives. But, you know, we are at least left with a body of works that's super impressive. And a lot of people seem to be trying to look back now and rediscover composers like Julia Perry.
1: Yeah. And I think it really goes to show with, you know, a life that isn't as long as the average person expects today. Julia Perry managed to achieve so many awesome things with her career in her life. And I think that that just speaks volumes to her talent and her skills as a composer.
0: For sure. And that kind of plays into the topic of why exactly is someone like Julia Perry forgotten? Let me just summarize these accolades for you. So obviously, between the 50s and 60s, Perry's career took off. Some of these accolades between these two decades are the two Guggenheim fellowships we mentioned. She studies with Luigi Dalla Piccola in Italy and also Nadia Boulanger in France um, and also receives a National Institute of Arts and Letters Award in 1964 Um, and then a Boulanger Grand Prix prize from her, I think it's a violin sonata um, and that came out of studying with Nadia Boulanger. So, very big accomplishments. And on top of that, Perry's getting performed by major orchestras during this time, like the New York Philharmonic. So someone who is widely performed, but not widely recorded. And Perry's music is definitely not reaching listeners' ears today, unfortunately. And when I say listeners, I don't just mean the average listener. I mean people who are dedicated to music and musical study. Um, you don't see Perry mentioned in a lot of curriculums, not included in the canon.
1: I certainly haven't. And it's sad because I haven't, I didn't hear about Julie Perry until maybe a little less than a year ago.
0: Yeah, same here. And that's the point where I was like, how are these people getting sort of lost to time? I know that's the title of this podcast, but that's well, literally but what's happening. And you know, as a composer myself, a composer of color, I wonder, are composers of color facing the same problems today? And one thing I've been thinking about is Julia Perry's works were widely performed, but not widely recorded. And of course, the racism in the, the music education and um, teaching, um, kind of um, putting together the, um, what the tastemakers want kind of pushed Julia Perry out, probably. Yeah. Um, but the internet now might be an equalizer for composers of marginalized groups in general, where there's this, I guess, documentation of their work that they can control.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I found some Julia Perry recordings on YouTube, Spotify, um, records, things like that. Um, so I, I'm interested, what do you think of like the internet playing a role in making sure these things aren't lost to history.
1: Yeah, I think the internet could play a great role in that, um, given that, you know, back in Julia Perry's time, we didn't have anything as accessible as the internet. The closest thing may be the radio or maybe television. But even then, you can't necessarily control what content you're going out to get like you can with, you know, modern computers, modern smartphones. So if people today want to listen to, like, oh, I want to listen to some music by a composer like Julia Perry, they can just go and do that. They don't have to hope that it'll come up in the radio or that they'll find it in a record shop, you know?
0: For sure. And I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably involved in the new music scene in some way. And there's definitely something to be said for um, programming of works by marginalized composers. It doesn't happen often. And unfortunately, it does seem like um, orchestras and listening audiences do prefer understandably great composers, but much older composers than 20th century works. So like we see, you know, the the BBB, the yep. Brahms, Beethoven, Bach, um, legendary composers. We see the Mozarts, you know, all of that. But um, definitely there's not a lot of rediscovery happening is what people call it of like reintroducing people to work of composers who were active, but who are more or less slept on. Um, and I do wonder like the term rediscovery itself is kind of like weird. Mm -hmm. Um, but we've seen it with not just classical composers like Julia Perry, but blues musicians, um, jazz musicians, they don't get the, the credit you know, for their work while they're alive.
1: Absolutely. And I think we see this sort of thing happen in a lot of different um, art medias. You know, there's a lot of artists whose works we just don't hear about until several years after they're gone. And then it's like, dang, you know, it's it kind of sucks. They didn't get that success while they were alive. But at least we're recognizing their work. Um it's, at least their work is finally getting the light and recognition that it's worthy of.
0: Yes. And and interestingly enough, a lot of these people who are rediscovered end up actually being super influential figures in some way, mm-hmm. like originators of a unique, innovative style or just people of amazing craft. Julia Perry has amazing craft. And we see a lot of times these um, artists who are pushed aside are actually super essential um, to understanding the history of the genres they write in. Yes. Now, one thing that, um, people might be wondering as well, did Julia Perry write a lot of music in the first place? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 12 symphonies, two concertos, three operas, um, and a ton of chamber music. And of course, a lot of that is vocal and choral work. Now, We talked about the development of Perry's style a little bit. But um, what's interesting is during Perry's early years in the 40s, studying a lot of that music introduced um, African-American folk idioms. So like spirituals, work songs, things like that introduced into her music um, and also things like blues influence. Um, But then you see as Perry went to Europe, those kind of go away. Um, And I wonder, you know, is it because of the rigorous study with these, um, you know, masterful composers who are probably teaching like some really advanced um, Western classical music traditions, you know?
1: Yeah. Or maybe it might be a thing where, you know, some students often have a tendency to be like, oh, my... Teacher writes music like this. Maybe I want to write music that sounds like my teacher's music. So they, psych- I don't want to say cycle out, but they take away um, compositional methods and practices that they did have. For example, Julia Perry's um, folk influence and uses other mediums to influence their work. So the folk aspect almost gets pushed aside for a while, but maybe it comes back in her later years.
0: Actually, yes, it does come back in her later years. Um, But before we get into that, I wonder, is it like a proximity thing, too? Um, There was so much racial tension in the U.S. during this time. Mm -hmm. And maybe when Perry traveled all the way to Europe, there's this distance, like physical distance from that conflict that made the incorporation of these elements, these folk elements into her work, less essential, maybe. Um, That's a
1: great point, and you know, I was just thinking that, but I think you put it into words better than I could have. So,
0: well, but you'll definitely see Perry incorporate um, these idioms again later on, and in ways that are speaking in some way to like the issues of that time. Um, but in Europe, it's honestly, I <laughs> I'm not super familiar with how the um, racial element, or I guess how racial politics and conflicts were in Europe during that time for um, black artists. But of course, we've heard the anecdotes that at least classical music generally was better received. But what you'll see is when Perry got back to the U.S. during the 50s and the 60s, or mid-50s, I guess, um, after that close to a decade in Europe... Harry started reincorporating these idioms back into her music, into um, these big symphonic works, even. Um, so this is something noteworthy um, that we see this circle of like, I guess, starting with your roots and then learning, uh, adopting new ideas, and then. Kind of going back, and that's something composers do a lot.
1: (laughs) So I guess when I said cycling earlier, I shouldn't have said, maybe not cycling, because cycling sounds like that's almost exactly what it was.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's just something we do see in a lot of composers, but I definitely think it's interesting that there's this um, literal continental divide of being in Europe, going back to North America, um, and seeing these elements reintroduced into the work. Um but of course even from Perry's earlier works um early 50 works like the ones we'll talk about like a short piece for orchestra um you see a corporation of definitely things that were in vogue for 20th century early mid 20th century composers I say that because the assumption from people who might be a little bigoted is that composers who are being rediscovered are not up to snuff with the the level of craft of other twentieth century composers, which is obviously not a a wholesome belief, you know?
1: Yeah, and a lot of these people saying this probably aren't a, probably aren't up to snuff themselves. to be perfectly <laughs> honest:
0: yeah, I, I think anyone who listens to Perry's music, it's without a doubt something that stands out. This is something that people should be tuned into, you know.
1: Yes, absolutely. This is some music you really don't want to miss. And even though we're not going to be playing the music itself, we are going to talk about it. So we all very much encourage you to go and check out these pieces um, after you're done listening to our podcast. Or you can pause, listen, and then listen to us talk. Do whatever you want to do.
0: Yes. So on that note, we're going to jump right into some of we think are... I guess, essentials pieces you should definitely get into if you're just hearing about Julia Perry. And to start this off, it's a short one. <laughs> Literally, it's a yes. short piece for orchestra. This is from the 50s, 1952. And if I remember correctly, it was premiered by the New York Philharmonic or the Pittsburgh Symphony. There's some major orchestra performances and recordings of this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really cool work. I think... If you listen to it, one thing that stood out to me is in that short bit of time, there's great interplay between every part. There's these contrapuntal textures that unfold in a really nice way where you can tell that Perry is honing in on the timbre, the capabilities of each individual section of the orchestra.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Her skills at orchestrating are really impressive. And I think they really, not only are characteristic of this time period, but I think that she, in my opinion, I think she's really good at showing off how good she is at orchestrating with this short piece specifically. So it's really, really fun to listen to.
0: It actually reminded me of how someone would write for like more like a sinfonietta, you know, where there's these. Exposed, exposed textures that are highlighting you know individual instruments almost.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a great point, and I agree with you on that.
0: Well, it works very well with this sort of like um, interplay between all the different parts. You get all these intricate textures, and I really think this is a great piece to start with because it has something for everyone. Like if you're someone who really likes dissonant music. Um, This is a good one for you. There's a lot of great dark textures, crunchy dissonances. (laughs) Do we use the term crunchy for that?
1: Yes, we do use the word crunchy. It's a great word and it's accurate.
0: I guess that's like literal texture of music, right? (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of motivic development. So if you're someone who really latches on to melodic figures and stuff, it's very clear that Perry is working those in, paying attention to, you know, Each iteration of it. And I really suspect like there's some sort of like interesting system going on in this or something where you can really tell there's a clear transformation of the material.
1: Yeah, and I think that kind of goes back to what you said about how some of her music does follow the vogue of a lot of pieces from the 50s and 60s when she was composing this, um, she's definitely not only just following these, you know, popular compositional trends, but she's very, very good and exemplary at doing it herself in her way.
0: Yes. And of course, we don't mean that by saying like, oh, it's in vogue, it's generic or something. No, definitely (laughs) not.
1: That's not what I meant. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we mean that this is obviously something that was, that was a, Fitting for the time, but exemplary at the same time. And that's kind of why it's curious why this piece, it's a pretty short piece. Orchestras could be picking this up. Mm-hmm. Why there's, why it's not being um, programmed a lot. Now, there are some recordings online and even a nice score video that you can dig into this piece for. There's one by the Imperial Philharmonic of Tokyo. There's also one by the New York Philharmonic conducted by William Steinberg. And that's a recording from 1965. So, wow. I haven't been able to find very recent recordings, you know?
1: Wow. So, any orchestra director listening to this, if you need a new piece to play, this one definitely could use a newer recording.
0: Yeah, it fit right into a program. It's a nice, like, I guess, like an interlude. Like, it's a very high intensity piece, but it's not super long. Yeah, it's um,
1: definitely not like gonna be super taxing for performers but it's definitely one that I think that they would enjoy playing
0: now comparing composers is usually not a good idea but I thought I'd mention this for people who might be hesitant to get into you know some (laughs) new music Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't mean new music like music today but I mean music you haven't heard Um, I've heard uh, these kind of I've heard this period of Perry's music compared to like Skirabin Stravinsky, um, composers like that. So I think, you know, if you're turning up to ride a spring or something, you're going to like this. If you're turning up to, yeah. <laughs> is that what we, are we still saying turning up in 2021? Yeah, <laughs> you know, if you're listening to um, Aegon and stuff, I think you'll like this because some people say that it, it bears the quality of like almost like neoclassical I'm not sure if I really agree with that assessment, um, but I think this has, like I said, something for everyone. If you're a fan of romantic music or you like some of the more uh, mid 20th century things that came out, uh, I think you'll like this either way.
1: Absolutely. And if you don't, I don't know why you don't, but um, Julia Perry has a ton of other awesome pieces that we can get into here.
0: Yes. And the next one is arguably one of Perry's most, I guess, essential works. I'm talking about Stabat Mater. Now, this is actually a little bit before. It's one year before. This is a 1951 work. And, you know, people say it's one of Perry's most major works. It's composed for a contra alto and string orchestra. I think already off the bat, a really interesting instrumentation. And as you may have guessed from this title, it's a setting of the hymn text of the same name.
1: For those of you who are familiar with hymn titles, um, Sabbat Mater is a very um, popular one. And the text actually is depicting the sorrow that Jesus Christ's mother, Mary, felt during his crucifixion.
0: Now, this work is super interesting. It's not an opera work, but the way the text is set is very operatic. If you're any Mm -hmm. fan at all, of opera. You're going to like this one and I really love these sort of like almost concerto type things where it's like string orchestra or chamber ensemble with like a soloist of some sort, in this case like a voice. Mm-hmm. And some even say this was written for Perry's voice. I'm not sure <laughs> someone fact-checked that for us, but yeah. um that would be really interesting like imagining someone like Perry performing this piece.
1: Oh yes. And I think that's just got to be so fun. If it were true, writing a piece for yourself, singing with an orchestra backing you up, that's just so badass.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Again, the orchestration is very good, very dynamic. But this is a string orchestra. And I wouldn't say there's a ton of like um, extended techniques or indeterminacy, aleatoric stuff being employed in this. But you still get an immense deal of variety from the shifts in the texture. Like these big gestures that sweep up and then shift into like something like that's completely subdued. Um, very, very impressive writing. And it works so well with like how dramatic the vocal is.
1: Oh, absolutely. And the her shifts in orchestration also play a role into that. There are some parts where she has these very like um these soft sort of tranquil lines that kind of create these moments of stasis. And then later on, you have these more larger 2D sections where, you know, all the strings are playing the same, if not very similar material, while the voice is kind of just booming over it.
0: Yeah, I like that stuff. And, you know, maybe it's because we're like, you know, children of the internet. We have like, I mean, I personally love pieces that have, abrupt changes in texture and by texture i mean like the orchestration and the i guess nature of the material changes drastically like from loud two t's that are like really bright and aggressive to like dark mellow subdued sounds like i really enjoy pieces like this where you can get caught up in the gestures you know yeah. um and in this case, I don't understand the the lyrics. It's not in, the text is not in English.
1: Well, there in the score, there is a translation that is done by Perry herself from the original Latin text to English. And I believe there's plenty of translations that are available online because the Stabat Mater, um, not poem, but the- The hymn text. The hymn text, yes. It is very commonly used. There's a ton of other settings of this text by several other composers (laughs) from all 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 sorts of centuries because this text has been around forever um well not forever but a very very long time yeah so
0: (laughs) well this is a good addition and um i've read that this is widely performed um and even then though it's kind of hard to find recordings
1: yeah i'm not sure if maybe these were Widely performed back before it was more commonplace to actually record the concerts because we do come across, you know, recordings of pieces from concerts back in, you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, maybe even earlier. But I don't think it was as commonplace to just record the concert and have it ready to go and upload it somewhere onto a CD or (laughs) YouTube or whatever was available at the time as it is today.
0: Yeah, we're lucky. I mean, we have laptops in our pockets, smartphones. We
1: have cameras and recorders in our pockets, thanks to um, whatever smartphone you have. If you have a smartphone, not everyone does.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think maybe these advances in technology creation of the internet will help people of marginalized groups get their music permanently in the world, you know?
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, I'm definitely thinking about it myself like you know how much music can I preserve in some way and thankfully now that things like YouTube exist, we see people digging into their archives and pulling out recordings yes. um, but I mean the same goes for not just it goes for some pretty major scores like there's composers like for example I was learning Brahms like original manuscripts and sketches very hard to get your hands on mm-hmm. but they're just like In in a a safe somewhere or in a library somewhere.
1: They are out there. They exist. They didn't just suddenly vanish when Brahms died.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I mentioned Brahms because it would be so amazing to dig into Perry's sketches. How did Perry think of this stuff? There's very few um, program notes, I guess, floating around. The next piece we're going to talk about does have some.
1: Well, before we jump into the next piece and before we get away too far away from the topic of recordings, there are two recordings that you can find easily online of Staba Mater. One of them is by the Japan Philharmonic Orchestra, and this one is featuring mezzo-soprano vocalist Makiko Asakura. And there's another recording. It's a really great recording on the album Roots. And this one actually features a baritone vocalist, Thomas Stimmel. Now, this is really great to have two recordings, two contrasting voice types, and especially of a piece that otherwise doesn't have a lot of recordings available.
0: Yeah, it's it's really a treat to have these essentially two different voice types, two different interpretations and different ensembles. Um, Did you mention the album, the album that the second one? Yeah, Roots. Really nice. And there's other stuff on that album, too. Definitely worth checking out. But I just really think if you get the chance, listen to both of them. Um, It's just really nice having, I guess, those two different textures.
1: Oh, yes. So
0: we talked about some notes on how Perry's style developed. And I really think these two pieces are a good starting point for just getting into Perry. Uh, We're going to jump ahead quite a few years to Homunculus C.F. This is a 1960 work, and some people say it's the most innovative of Perry's works.
1: Yeah, and this one does contrast from the other two works. It's not for orchestra, but this is a work for harp, celeste, slash piano. Um, I believe they double. And eight additional percussionists. So yes, the orchestration is definitely standing out compared to the two prior orchestra, orchestra works that we just heard.
0: Yeah, we're looking at a smaller size now, and we would be remiss to not mention there are a lot of chamber works of smaller instrumentation by Perry that you should check out. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the earlier ones that we um, haven't mentioned is like Prelude for Piano. Um, mm-hmm. That's a really nice one that has a bit of blues influence in the piano writing.
1: I love that piece.
0: Yeah, it's a nice one. Um, Now, we do have some notes from Perry on this one, which is very, very good. So let me read these to you. Homunculus CF for 10 percussionists was composed in Akron, Ohio during the summer of 1960 in my apartment situated on the top floor of my father's office. Now, Perry mentions here that her father was a physician and surgeon. This is important. (laughs) Yeah. So continuing on, The apartment was equipped with all the necessary facilities except a piano. These clinical surroundings evoked memories of the medieval laboratory where Wagner, youthful apprentice to Faust, made a successful alchemy experiment, fashioning and bringing to life a creature he called a homunculus. Having selected percussion instruments for my formula, then maneuvering and distilling them by means of the chord of the 15th. This musical test tube baby was brought to life. The chord of the 15th was created from a succession of superimposed thirds. So in this case, that's E, G-sharp, B, D-sharp, F-sharp, A-sharp, C-sharp, and E-sharp. It's an alternating uh, structure of major and minor thirds built off of E4. And if you didn't catch that, chord of the 15th is what CF stands for in the title of the work. And it's really interesting how Perry makes use of this chord of the 15th.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the way it's um, utilized and transformed throughout the piece is really interesting, Um, especially a piece for percussionists when not all the percussion instruments, you know, are pitched instruments. Um, so I think it's definitely a cool thing to listen to, um, and the way it alternates the use of major and minor thirds is quite interesting.
0: Well, what I find really compelling is that the different sections of this work kind of exploit this chord in a few different ways. So each section of the work deals with a different subset of this chord of the 15th. So, different amount of pitches are introduced just a few at a time throughout each section of the piece until in the final section, all of them are utilized and I really think, like you said, it's interesting that this sort of idea, this system was employed with um a percussion work, but of course, you can get some really um i guess transparent use of pitch material through pitch percussion um And I know if I'm remembering correctly, different parts of these works of of this work focuses on more like rhythmic material and less on pitches. But of course, you remember you get this beautiful use of the harp and chalice. It's really (laughs) anyone listening, tune into that one because you will definitely um, like it. It goes from this like, I guess, um, almost sterile um, use of percussion. very. Very sparse, and then you get this like beautiful use of the um the resonance from the harp and the chieste
1: yeah that's dark difference, definitely it feels like it's opening up a new world within this otherwise short piece it's really, really um gorgeous and impressive, so we totally recommend this piece, and y'all should check it out
0: and I think what's interesting now now we don't know as much about other works of Perry as far as like explicit insight into what Perry was thinking but I think it's really cool that in this 60s work you see Perry employing a system um, and by a system like some sort of set of rules and parameters to manipulate something in in the m- musical work so Perry's had some sort of guidelines for how the composition of this work should be um, kind of done Yeah, and I think both of us are familiar with this kind of approach.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think most of the pieces that I write use some kind of system, whether it be just manipulating one thing or manipulating almost everything in the piece. Um, Systems are definitely something that are utilized by a majority of composers today.
0: Well, even if we go back, um, I know there's a whole... can of worms of tonal atonal all these different ideas swirling around Mm -hmm. and we could you know we could give our discussion on that on some other podcast but what's interesting is um this approach to systematic composition goes back really really far as far as like the oldest composers you could think of they're always taking influence from things like their environment around them and building these systems that create a musical metaphor. And that's what Perry's done here of like, I'm in this apartment. uh, My, my dad's a doctor and there's this whole sterile environment. I don't have a piano. Maybe if Perry composes with the piano a lot, which I mean, we don't, we have Sibelius, we have sample libraries, we have all this stuff Well, it sounds
1: like based on the fact that she noted, yeah, this apartment has all the necessary facilities except for a piano. You know, she's noting the fact that a piano is a necessary facility that this new apartment of hers doesn't have that she felt was important enough to, you know, have a whole piece where that was the um, originating thought behind it.
0: Yes, and taking that limitation and making it inspiration is like, Something to take away. And I think if you go into the piece knowing this stuff, um, you'll enjoy it even more. But even without knowing that, this is just obviously uh, a very wonderful work.
1: Yes, I am in complete agreement with you, Josh.
0: Now, I was able to find some recordings of this and even a scan of different pages of the score, like really small, on the Indiana University Press's historical anthology of music by women. You can find a whole write-up of Perry on there with um some some bits of the score on here. Um do you have notes on the recording, Han?
1: Oh uh, yeah, there's a recording up on YouTube uploaded by a channel called The Wells Company with a performance by the Manhattan Percussion Ensemble directed by Paul Prince or Price, my bad.
0: Yes, and if I remember correctly, um maybe on the Indiana Press Uh, website, there's like a listening list of like different Spotify and YouTube links. Oh, wow. I'm sure if you look online, you can you can stumble into some um, recordings of Perry's works. And now that you're introduced into those, there's so much more out there. Um, Maybe you can go and dig through and find some recordings if you have access to some like online databases and stuff, Um, because Finding these recordings there's so many works that you just can't find them, so hopefully, as time goes on, we see more and more people performing these works,
1: yeah, absolutely, because that's what we love seeing as composers is learning about not just rediscovering these composers but going out to concerts as they're starting to be in person again, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, but seeing um. Pieces by these new composers. Well, not new composers. These composers that we're rediscovering programmed onto these concerts. Yes. That's definitely what we want. And that's something that we find rewarding is saying, hey, I haven't heard of this composer before. Wow, they're awesome. And even though they're not new in the sense where, you know, they're not alive, they're not making music today. It's new in the sense where, hey, I haven't heard of this person before. I'm glad to have been exposed to their work.
0: Yes. And that is this episode of Lost to Time. Definitely go out, look up those pieces that we mentioned, and tell your friends too. Um, See, maybe get some friends together, perform these works, or just be a great listener. And you can tune in next time for more information and more studies of composers whose music seems lost to time. Before we end things here, I want to remind you of the Contemporary Art Music Projects activities. This podcast is brought to you by them. And there's the Campground 22 Music Festival, the inaugural music festival, which you can submit to today as a composer or a performer. The deadline for that is October 31st. Now, Han, how about you tell us about some of the upcoming concerts?
1: Absolutely. So the first one we got, as I mentioned before, September 30th, it's going to be live streamed on YouTube. So you don't have to be in Florida to check it out. You can be literally anywhere in the world as long as you have internet and a device that has internet on it (laughs) to be there. It's going to be the um, concert collaborating with a new arts collaboration as a benefit concert followed by an open discussion of new music by minority composers and performers Then on October 3rd is the first in-person concert in Tempore at 7 p.m. at the Timuka Arts White House in Orlando, Florida. And a few days later in Tampa, Florida at St. Andrew's Church is going to be the Constellations concert. So both those concerts, the Constellations and in Tempore, are going to be available in person and live streamed if you can't travel all the way to Orlando or Florida to tune in.
0: Yes. And keep an eye out for more podcasts from other hosts. There's a few different podcast series going on that Camp is producing. So be sure to keep an eye out for those. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. Thank you again, Han, for joining us as guest hosts for this one. I'm sure we'll have you back again.
1: Thank you for having me, Josh. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you today. And I can't wait to hear future episodes of this podcast.
0: Hey, you heard it here. We're a bit biased, but we're so glad to be doing this podcast and we think you all will really enjoy what's to come. Stay tuned and we'll see you next time.